how much joy and anxiety and worry and wisdom and happiness you can cram into one word, <laughs> dad. And maybe as you watch that, maybe it takes you back to earlier today, yesterday afternoon, maybe to decades ago, you know, hearing those voices say, dad, or maybe it was your voice saying, dad. It's such a cool picture of what fatherhood is. And I know I think about that because with my own kids, I think a lot of times what I hear is, dad, <laughs> right? A little bit of roll of the eyes, you know, and I was, I was in a bookstore with my wife yesterday and I'm thinking about Father's Day. And so I went to the section that like there's a whole shelf just says, dads, okay, what's going to be here? And there's all these books about how to be a better dad. And one of them was like something for every day of the year. And I pick it up. It's like, oh man, I'm not doing that. Oh, I guess I better start doing that. Oh, man, I am way behind. I've turned three days already. I'm not doing any of this stuff. And I don't know about you, but, like, being a dad can be hard. Like, you love your kids. You want to do your best. And I've got days where I'm just staring at the ceiling thinking, like, I have already blown it. <laughs> and I'm running out of time to fix this whole thing. And you can feel that pressure. So it cracked me up that on that shelf at the bookstore, half of the books were how to be a better dad. I'm not kidding. There's, like, a line down the middle. And then the other half were... How to give yourself compassion as a dad. How to forgive yourself as a father. How to show yourself grace when you make mistakes as a dad. I'm like, I think I need one of each maybe, you know. How to try harder and then how not to feel too bad when trying harder doesn't quite work out. But you know, our dads put a lot of time and energy into us. There's a lot of wisdom, a lot of humor. I mean, we all know the dad jokes, right? And this is why when you think about dad, a dad is somebody that when a kid says, I need you, dad says, that's what I'm here for. And when a kid says, I'm hungry, a dad says, hi, hungry, I'm dad. <laughs> okay, I promise that's the only one. My kids laughed so hard at that the first time I did that. They've never laughed again. I don't know why. I tell it all the time. It's not getting the laughs like it used to. <laughs> but, you know, those, it's, it's funny how we have those, those characteristic things that we remember our, about our dads. There are probably jokes that you would laugh at because your dad kept telling them as a kid that nobody else even understands. Or little bits of wisdom like that song had that you're carrying forward. And so that's a little bit of what we want to lean into today because as we look at this specific king from almost 3,000 years ago, he comes from a moment in history that would have been about seven, 750 years before Jesus was born, but he's actually in the royal line of Jesus. And he comes at a time that all of the kings before him for quite a while, generation after generation, have not been good kings. They've been doing things that are destructive for themselves, destructive for their families, destructive for their nation that they're trying to lead. And then this king named Hezekiah shows up. And Hezekiah is trying to figure out what does it look like for me to be the man, for me to be the father, for me to be the leader. And he begins to learn how to reshape his own legacy as he thinks about his own father, as he thinks about his own life, and as he thinks about God as a heavenly father. And so we're going to jump into a chapter from the Old Testament thousands of years ago. And as we do this, kind of like the biographies of Jesus that we've shown over the last couple of weeks, what you're going to notice here is that God wants to be very clear that this is not myth, it's not fable, it's not Aesop. These are real people in real history, in real places, living out their real lives. What that means is you'll hear a few names you've probably never heard before. You'll hear a few places you've probably never heard before. 
Don't worry too much about those details other than to realize how specific the Bible is being so that you know this stuff really happened. So it comes from chapter 18 of a book called 2 Kings. That's where we find the story of Hezekiah. It says, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. Can you imagine that? And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. So this is the big difference about Hezekiah from a lot of the guys that had gone before him. He's going to do right in the sight of the Lord. Even his own father, Ahaz, was a pretty negative example. He did a lot that not just like the Bible would call evil, like even if you don't believe in the Bible, you would agree Ahaz made some pretty big mistakes. Stuff that hurt him, stuff that hurt his family, stuff that took the nation completely down the wrong path. And now you've got Ahaz, who it's, uh, you've got Hezekiah, who it says did right in the sight of the Lord. But now I just told you that all these details are to make sure that you know the Bible is accurate and this really happened. But aren't I looking at a contradiction right now? It says Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. And then it says, according to all that his father David had done. So who is the father? Ahaz or David? Well, the way the Bible usually talks about this is they don't talk about fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers. They just talk about your father, like the man who raised you, and anybody before that in your family line is your father's. So essentially what this is saying is that Ahaz is looking at his own dad and he's looking for a better example to follow. So he looks back through his history to David. And I think this is one of the most stressful things about being a dad. Like kids always need an example to follow. You hear these really convicting sayings like, more is caught than taught. So I keep telling my kid, think like this, act like this, talk to mom that way, talk to your siblings this way, be like this. And then they do something. <laughs> it's like, oh man, you got that from me, <laughs> right? Like, because they just, they absorb our example. They absorb the way we live. And I could tell you with each of my four kids, it's like, oh, that bad habit, that's mine. Oh no, you got that attitude for me. Oh boy, you got that weakness for me. Okay, I'm so sorry, everyone, that you are my children, right? You can feel that at times. You know, and we can spend a lot of energy worrying about it, but part of what Hezekiah realizes is he does need an example to follow. He's only 25 years old when he takes the throne, and his dad hasn't been a great example, so he looks further back to this King David who was described as a man after God's own heart, who had unified the kingdom, who had been one of the greatest kings, biblical or otherwise, that the world had ever seen. Hezekiah says, I want to be like that. So an encouragement for us is to honor your history to shape your legacy. Right? That Hezekiah isn't going into this blind. He's saying, who do I want to become? As I look back at the lessons learned in the past, maybe it's your dad. Maybe you just look at your dad and you follow his example. And maybe it's another mentor. Maybe it's a grandfather. And maybe there's someone else who stepped into your life that you say, that's what I want to be like. And that's what Hezekiah was doing. And you know, it reminded me of a story of one of the best dad tips I think I've ever gotten when I was a younger dad, and I think we only had my daughter at that time, Belle, and she was like maybe two years old. But I had a friend named Bob, and um, Bob passed away. He was about 75, so he was a little older than me, but still too young. But Bob was an athlete. So like when Bob was in high school, he played all 12 sports. He got letters in all of them. He was varsity for everything. 
It's like that was his life, was sports and being an athlete. And so even, even at 75, the day that Bob died, he went out for a run that morning. You know, it's just like this was who he was. And so it's kind of interesting that at his funeral, his son, Rhett, was speaking. And like the first thing Rhett said was, you know, my dad's entire life was about sports. And I don't like sports. And I thought, oh man, this is about to be really awkward. I mean, I knew Rhett. He was a nice guy. But I, I was like, wherever this is going, this is going to be painful. He said, I was into politics. Ugh. <laughs> and student government. All right. And every day when I got home from school, my dad would ask me how student government went that day. My dad would take me to the library to look up books about politics and about the Constitution and about men like Abraham Lincoln that I wanted to be like someday. And he never pressured me to become an athlete. And Rhett went on to say how much that shaped the way that he thought about God, right? That if his dad loved him for who he was and what he was interested in, hey, maybe God could too. It shaped the way he approached fatherhood himself and even his own career, which kind of worked out well for him because the way I knew Rhett was actually as the mayor of the city where I was living. And so politics actually became his life. And he said that in his own fatherhood and in his career as mayor, he always wanted to remember what his dad had taught him, to listen well to what is important to other people. Now, what a cool way to honor your history and pass that legacy on. But that would have been a little more difficult for Hezekiah, for the king that we're looking at today, because there were some things from his father that he did carry forward. His father had relatively strong military prowess, and that was something that Hezekiah also had, which he probably learned from dad, you know, something good that he could carry forward. But there was also a lot of hurt that Hezekiah looked at and was trying to figure out, what do I want to remove maybe from the past that has been painful? And so the next sentence actually says, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. What in the world is he talking about? Right? I don't know what bad habits I thought his dad had, but high places and sacred pillars. and So basically what this is talking about is ancient civilization idolatry. Right? You, get, you carve a little stone image and then you pray to it. In fact, one of them, this one that says this bronze serpent that Moses made, was never meant to be an idol. It, they call it Nehushtan, which is a, a play off of the words bronze serpent. That was actually something that God gave them. He said, hey, this is just a symbol, but here's what I want you to know. For all of you who are dying of this horrible disease, when you look at the snake, you'll be healed. Yes, that is weird. <laughs> That's one of the things you read in the Bible. You're like, okay, God, if you say so. But at the moment, he was testing their faith. And what's amazing is that years later, when Jesus shows up in John 3, where we get John 3.16, like one of the most famous Bible verses, Jesus actually points back to that bronze snake. Like that's all it was ever meant to be was, hey, when it sounds hard to believe, will you trust God that this is the way to be healed? Jesus says, that's what I'm like. Like the bronze serpent, I know it can be hard to believe, but if you trust me that I am God in the flesh, that I came and died for everything you've ever done wrong, then you'll be forgiven and healed. 
Oh, but they named it Bronzy the Snake and they're worshiping it and they're bowing down to it. And it's one of those places where you think like, man, ancient people are morons, right? Like, what are you doing? Well, Hezekiah, at least for his part, says, look, I believe that there is one God, the real God. He's proved it with miracles and I'm not worshiping your little stone statues. So he removes all of that stuff. And here's what I love about this. Here's the encouragement he's given us. Reject passivity. I love that phrase. I actually stole that from Authentic Manhood, which is uh, some material that we do with men's groups here at Horizon. So way too early teaser, but we're doing it again in October if you want to go home this afternoon and mark your calendar for Authentic Manhood in October. But here's part of why I love that, because the first time that I went through that as a dad, thinking about my relationship with my kids, man, reject passivity. Because there is so much in our lives that is pulling on us all the time. We are so busy and there are so many demands that if I'm not intentional about stuff, I'm just going to end up going with the flow and putting things in place and letting them be in control of my life that I never meant them to be in control of my life. Because all those little idols they were worshiping, really in the end, it doesn't come down to this stone statue. It's what the statue represented, which is why they had the God of power or the God of pleasure, or the God of money. And Hezekiah is saying, I don't want power, pleasure, or money to control my life. I'm removing those things. Right? That's what happens when a good thing takes over, right? And so what would it look like to take it or leave it on purpose? And what have I learned from the past that I want to keep going, but what might be there that hurts or that isn't helpful that I want to let go of? And so we've seen some of the things he removes. And in the next paragraph, it describes what he wants to carry forward. It says, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Right? Not all that other stuff. Not going to trust power, pleasure, or money. He's going to trust the Lord God so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And so this is the difference maker for Hezekiah. That he was going to trust the Lord, not all of the other things that life would throw at him. And I love that phrase that he held fast to the Lord. Because I think it's easy to approach the Bible, especially when you get into some of these old pages where it's like, man, this is, I don't even understand what's going on here. This history is so far behind us. And you realize we can often think of God only as a cosmic lawgiver. So God creates the world, spins that thing, hands us a book of rules, and then I'll meet him when I'm dead. And we'll find out if I did the rules okay or not. Which is not actually how the Bible talks about itself or how it talks about God. And so you notice that even though it does say he kept God's commandments, all that stuff Moses wrote down with the Ten Commandments, all, all the, you know, the lightning and the thunder, yes, because he had a relationship with God. Because he knew God personally. That God wasn't some far distant thing that Hezekiah hoped was really out there somewhere because I need some help. Like he knew God and he held fast to him. And so that idea of holding fast, you got to imagine it like, you know, if you could pretend that God was standing right in front of you, it's like a bear hug you put around God and you lock your hands together and no matter what life brings, you do not let go because I trust God and I'm going to hold fast to my heavenly father. That's what Hezekiah learned. 
You know, one of my earliest memories, you know how you have that, that one memory, it's like the first thing you remember of your life, but you don't really know how old you were. So I was probably three or four, but I have this memory that, that this word reminds me of because we were at a party and I had that moment where it's like, I lost my mom and dad. Which I'm sure the fear that set in is probably why it's like a core memory, you know. I'm like, I lost my mom and dad. And so I'm looking around, you know, you're panicking. And I can only imagine what this poor little lost child looks like as he panics and spinning in circles. And then I saw him. Those are my dad's jeans. And I grabbed that leg and I held on tight. I was like, I am never letting go again for the rest of my life. And I looked up and it wasn't my dad. I am so sorry, sir, <laughs> right? Like, so fortunately, I did eventually find my parents or they found me or whatever. But it's like that kind of feeling is what this phrase is trying to give us. That when I realize how desperate I am for the one who gives me comfort, who is so strong, who is so big, that I just know if I grab onto dad, like we're gonna be fine. And then dad starts walking, you know, you're doing this move. Right? That's like what this word is a picture of. I'm holding fast to my dad. And I love how Hezekiah's life demonstrates that even though he didn't have a great example in his own home, that even though growing up there was stuff that was broken, he found his strength in a heavenly father and became one of the most successful kings that not just Judah, his nation, but the world has ever seen. So that even going back to David, who's one of the most famous kings in history, they're saying there was, but yeah, but there was never one like Hezekiah. And it reminded me of a story of a friend of mine, and I asked him if I could share this with you because I think it's really powerful, but it's kind of painful too. Because my friend Jason, when he was growing up, his dad was an alcoholic. And he, just hearing him tell me this, just describe how, how much it short-circuited his brain, his own development, and just growing up, that he always felt like he was the one who had to step in and protect his family from his dad. And so I asked him if I could share this with you. And so I, I just wanted to give it to you in his own words. Because Jason didn't know God growing up either. Just felt like he was on his own. But since then, he's come to an understanding of Jesus Christ. He's trusted Jesus as his forgiver, as his, his savior, to find his strength there. And so this is what he writes now. He says, I believe that God gave me the ability to love my father, even when he was not a good father. Even when he was hurting me and my family. I was given the ability to see him as someone who was hurting, who was angry and broken, with no faith, no relationship with his creator, no relationship with his heavenly father, not knowing God's love for him. I hated the alcohol, but I loved my dad. I was angry with him for choosing alcohol over us, but I was able to forgive and pray for him. So I didn't hate him, I hated the pain he carried. I hated his choices. And it made me sad that he did not know God. I couldn't fix it for him. He had to choose. So he says, then the miracle happened. You see, all of us, whether you are thinking about your own father or you're thinking about your kids, like every one of us has to make our own choices. Hezekiah made all these great changes, but even he had a son who went like farther off the rails than anyone before him. And yet we can keep praying for them because Jason says then the miracle happened after 40 years of addiction and heavy drinking 
every day. It happened. He said he was done. And as Jason told it to me, he's like, yeah, right. (laughs) 40 years, Dad, I'm not even letting my guard down for that. But it was true. He was done. I got my father back. And I never thought that could happen. He says, I know that God allows us to experience struggle and pain, sometimes to use those experiences to strengthen us and even have a larger impact on others. I also believe that he provides miracles and blessings to express his love for us. You see, what Jason discovered was that even though his earthly father was imperfect, he had a heavenly father who was perfect, that he could lean into the strength of God to help him in places that no one had helped him before. And so now he's rebuilding, restoring that relationship with dad. He said it's like he met his dad for the first time and now they're becoming friends. And he's getting to tell his dad about what God has meant in his own life. And you might say that as you look at Jason's life, now it's clear that the Lord is with him. And that's actually exactly how it describes it in 2 Kings. It says that the Lord was with Hezekiah. And so he was successful. They saw great changes happen in the nation. But remember we talked about how there were going to be some wars. There was still an enemy force who was at work out there. Now at this point in history, the great enemy was a nation known as Assyria. And Assyria, still to this day, as you look back through history, is one of the most vicious and most powerful and most brutal empires that the world has ever seen, especially there in the Middle East. And so these were scary dudes. So I won't go into all of the details because you get a little squeamish and we didn't put the PG-13 sign out today. (laughs) But... It would explain why the people of Israel and Judah, these two neighboring countries, were so scared of them. And at this moment in Hezekiah's life, just when things seem like they're going well, crisis hits. Because he's the king of Judah, and his neighbor to the north, Israel, is captured by Assyria and driven out into captivity, taken as slaves. So the buffer is gone, and the enemy is knocking at the door. And then it actually says in verse 13 of that same chapter, this is just a few years later, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, Hezekiah's country, and took them. So now not only is the enemy knocking at the door, but he's taken every one of their strongest cities except one. Jerusalem where Hezekiah lives what do you do well this is actually one of the places in ancient history that we have the greatest archaeological record for the facts that are in the Bible and one of the reasons for that is because Assyria kept incredible documentation of all of the ways that they beat up all the other countries (laughs) so we know how powerful they were but we also know that Hezekiah Not only did he have some military prowess that he probably learned from his own dad, but he was also an incredible architect and builder. And one of the things that he built is known as Hezekiah's wall, the outer wall. It was kind of a funny name for it because as you look at this picture, it looks like a stone path. Because what happens in these ancient cities is that over the centuries, rather than raise it to the ground and build again, they just build on top of it and then they build further out. 
So what you're looking at was actually a massively tall wall in Hezekiah's day. And for a little bit of perspective, you can see there's about halfway up a little boy on the right side wearing a, a black sweater and a collared shirt. This thing is over 23 feet wide, incredibly tall. And part of what was amazing about it was not just its size, but how quickly they built it when they saw that Assyria was coming and built a brand new wall around the city for protection. You can even see in the bottom left corner, there's like a little bit of somebody's house that was like, too bad, man, we're building the wall and just went right through it, used some of the stones from that house to build the wall. The other thing that Hezekiah is known for building is something called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, same thing. The, the Assyrians were famous for siege. That their armies were so strong, but if they could avoid the battle, they would just camp around you and shoot the breeze while they waited for you to starve to death or to give up. And so Hezekiah knew that we're going to have to have a way to get fresh water into the city if they surround us. And so he actually went to a water source outside the city and he had one crew start by the water source, one crew inside the city, and they dug a tunnel and met in the middle. I'm thinking, no way, dude. Like those things would miss each other somehow if I was in charge. But this is one of the places that you see that maybe these ancient people weren't so stupid after all. Because with none of our modern tools and none of our modern technology, not only did they meet in the middle, but over that third of a mile that this tunnel extended, there's only a 12-inch drop to make sure that the water would flow down into the city. That is a 0.06 hundreds of a percent precision in building this tunnel. Hezekiah was smart and Hezekiah was ready. And yet, as you read through Hezekiah's story, you see that fear takes over because he's gonna get a letter from this king and Hezekiah decides that the safest thing to do we better just pay him off. Strips all the gold and silver from the temple where they were supposed to worship God. Gives all the gold and silver from his own house. And it's like, why? I thought, he, what happened to hold fast to the Lord and trust the Lord? Because kings had done that before and it never works. Because when you pay off the other country, you know what happens when you run out of gold and silver? They just attack you anyway. <laughs> and God had showed them time and time again, I don't want you to trust in your money. I don't want you to trust in the nations around you. I want you to trust me. But you can understand why he'd be so afraid if Assyria is this vicious. In fact, one of the ways that we know the things that they did is because as they carved them into their walls, they actually uncovered the palace of this exact king, Sennacherib, that Hezekiah is up against. And in his throne room, all of these panels were carved and hung from the walls, and every one of them represents a battle that Assyria had won with all the detail of way that they had won the battle and what they had done to the survivors afterwards. The idea being that as you walked into the throne room, you see all of the king's greatest successes, that you are so in awe of him by the time you get to the throne that you just pull out the checkbook and say, how much is it gonna take for us not to go to war with you? <laughs> so since it's Father's Day, imagine this is your man cave carved into stone that would last for thousands of years, everything wonderful you have ever done. So when your family comes downstairs to see you, by the time they get to your throne, that easy chair, they just say, Dad, you're wonderful. Does that happen to you yet? It hasn't happened to me yet, but I'm sure it will someday, right? But you can understand why Hezekiah would be afraid because he's seen the history and on the human level, on the human level, he's got no chance. They're completely outmatched. 
And now he's out of all the gold, he's out of all the silver, and that didn't work either. He gets a letter from the king of Assyria that basically says, hey, thanks for the gold and silver, now we're coming to destroy you anyway. And you can actually see in this detail from one of these pieces, in the right corner is a siege ramp. Exactly the kind of ramp that they claim to have used and that they have found in ancient Judah up against the walls of cities that they destroyed. And so Hezekiah gets this letter that says, after all of that, after everything he tried in his own power, they're going to be destroyed anyway. What does a man do? Well, here's what he does. It's actually in the next chapter. In verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received that letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. You see what's happening here? And so some of this can kind of wash right past us. But when it says the house of the Lord, well, that's what they called the temple. Right? That was the place that they would go to worship that God had told them, hey, when you want to meet with me, when you want to talk to me, since we don't have cell phones yet and you can't shoot me an email, come into the temple. I'm going to call that my house. Come to God's house and let's talk about it. And so what Hezekiah does with this letter is he looks at his heavenly father and basically he runs to dad's house and spreads it out and says, dad, did you see this? Did you know about this? It's just like that video we saw. Every time that he hits a crisis, hey, dad. So maybe you're not rolling out a scroll, but maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it is an email. Maybe it's a text that you, can't, you cannot believe they just said that to you. God, did you see this? What, what am I supposed to do about this? I love this. Hezekiah thinks of God like his father. And he runs to dad's house to show him what the crisis is and ask for help. And how do you think God responds? I'll tell you what he doesn't say. I'm not helping you. Where, where's the gold and silver that you stripped out of here? That was mine. You're on your own, dude. Now look at what God says just a couple lines later. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Because you have prayed, I have heard. Of course, if he didn't talk to God, there'd be nothing to hear, right? That's what happened last time when he starts gathering up all the gold and silver and trying to pay off the enemy. Trying to make the crisis go away by throwing money at it. But now God says, hey, you prayed and I've heard. So I don't know about you, but sometimes it can feel like God doesn't know what's going on in our lives. It can feel like he is distant. And you can wonder if he's even listening. Or if he would, if you even tried praying. Sometimes it can feel like I shouldn't pray because it's my own fault I'm in this mess. I know what I did wrong and God knows what I did wrong. And I'm sure he's not going to listen to me. But Hezekiah doesn't worry about it. In the moment of crisis, he runs to his father. He goes to dad's house and he says, I need help. Look what just happened. I need help. And God says, I've heard. So the encouragement we get there is to talk to the Lord like a father. Not like some distant rule giver, but like dad that you can run to anytime. I was talking to a dad 
from Horizon over coffee a couple days ago and just thinking about what were the things that we loved about God. And that can sound so strange because I would not have always had conversations like that in my life. But the more I've read this book, the more I've tried talking to him about things going on in my life, the more I realized, and, and we shared this, it was like, it's his love. Like God actually loves me. Because for so much of my life, I spent time thinking, God wants me to obey, God wants me to obey, God wants me to obey. Sure, because he loves me. And I've felt very thankful in my own life to have an earthly father like that. You know, a dad that I can just call anytime. Hey, there he is. <laughs> I love my dad. I love country donuts. Those are only in Crystal Lake, Illinois, but they are the best ones. So if you're ever there, stop by. You know, and my dad is, again, I'm calling him all the time, like still the, today. You know, it's like something with the car, something with the house, something with the kids. Boop, boop, boop. Hey, dad. And I always start with, I have a quick question for you. <laughs> then you look at the, 42 minutes. Hey. And he still takes my calls. Isn't that nice of him? <laughs> Hope dad didn't have anything else to do today, you know. Uh, but one of the ways that I know that I can call him like that is because one of the strongest memories I have as a kid, we were on vacation and on the way back, we were stopping at Uncle John's house just for one night, going to sleep there, keep driving. And so we're just going to hang out with Uncle John for, for an evening and just fun family to be around. But man, I was sick and I don't know what happened, but it was like one of the worst migraines I've ever experienced where it hurts so bad. You would do anything to make it go away. And so I'm like in the other room, laying on the couch in the dark, just moaning, like crying, but you're trying not to cry because that makes it hurt more. I was only like 10 or 12 years old. But I remember my dad leaving the party behind, coming into that dark room, all six, five of him getting down on the floor next to me and just rubbing my head for over half an hour until I finally fell asleep. And I always think back to that moment because it showed me not just that my dad is big or strong or powerful, but that he's compassionate. But he cares about me. And that is exactly the way that the Bible describes God. That so often we think of him as big and powerful. But the message of the Bible is that God, all infinite size of him, got down next to me in the person of Jesus Christ. To go to the cross to actually take the penalty for everything that I have done wrong because he wants to show me compassion. Because he loves me. In fact, remember we said Hezekiah was modeling his life after David. Right? His great, 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 great grandfather. Well, David was one of the first guys to really write about how he understood God as father. And we have historical record of his ancient journals, these songs and poems that he would write. And one of the ones that David write that Hezekiah would have known is just called Psalm 103. And in two of the verses there, this is what it says. As a father pities his children, another way to define that would be has compassion on, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. And I love that picture. This is one of my favorite things in the whole Bible because I need that from God. <laughs> like if I have any chance to run to him and just say, Dad, I need some help. Oh yeah, I did do this stupid thing and I did do that stupid thing. And this is mostly my fault, but dad, can you help me? Is that, dad, is that God as a father, as a dad, he doesn't look at you and say, no man, you messed it up, you fix it. Now he understands that we are only human. I'm just a dusty guy and I need some help. 
In fact, earlier in that same poem, he describes the character of God as full of grace, full of mercy. He actually uses the phrase that God has abundant mercy, meaning even more mercy than you actually need, God has available for you. It says that God doesn't always contend with us. He doesn't harbor his anger forever. Man, that is what I need. Because for the mistakes that I make, God could contend with me all the time. He could just spend our entire relationship accusing me, and he'd kind of be right. I mean, he's God. And yet it says he doesn't always do that. He knows. He knows we're human. He knows we're dust. He knows we need grace. He knows we need mercy. And so kind of my final encouragement for you today is to trust the Lord like the perfect father. That whatever your relationship with your dad is like, no human father is perfect. And it helps to know that God is not the reflection of your earthly father, but he is the perfection of everything that a perfect father is. And so I would encourage you, maybe even just this week, maybe even today, we've actually printed that part of Psalm 103 on the program that you received on the way in or you can grab on the way out. Because you can actually just use that to try talking to God. Take each line, and I've, I've been doing this over the last couple of weeks as I think about my own kids and who I want to be as a dad. God, thank you that you are merciful and gracious. Would you help me be merciful and gracious too toward my kids the way you have been to me? And I think you'll find that it's just a really healing way, maybe a new way to approach God. And so as we close today, the band is going to come out and sing one more song for us. And where the first song was sort of a, a son reflecting on the messages his dad had given him, this one is the dad. Maybe you could think of it like a heavenly father, like a dad speaking to Isaiah, saying, speaking to Hezekiah, saying, I hope you have all of these amazing experiences, good and bad, as they shape your life and who you are. So let's pray and then listen to that song together. God, we do thank you that you introduce yourself to us as a father. Lord, it's amazing to think that with over 7 billion people on the planet, each one of us can just run to you with the text we got today and say, God, did you see this? Dad, can you help me? And so, Lord, whatever that might be in our lives, whatever we're going through today, whatever it is that we are living through, I just ask that we would know a little bit more of your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace as our Heavenly Father today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.